everyone. Welcome or welcome back to the Bruin Political Union podcast. I'm your host, Mia Thorson. Hi, I'm Shannon Kearney, I'm the BPU podcast director. We want to welcome you to the second episode of the Bruin Political Union podcast titled Women in American Politics. In this episode, we are going to highlight the women's role in the United States modern political system from prominent grassroots leaders such as Stacey Abrams, prominent representatives in the House such as the Squad, Vice President Kamala Harris, and the historic percentage of women, especially women of color, in the 117th Congress. And today, we are very happy to introduce Rohila Kusampudi, a fourth-year psychobiology major at UCLA, who is president of IGNITE at UCLA, encouraging women to involve themselves in politics. So Hi, it's been so, um, I'm so grateful to be on this podcast. And um, yeah, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, we're really fortunate to have her on to talk about the role of women in American politics. And before we start with different questions we're going to ask her, we want to give a little background on the role of women in history in American politics and also um, the historical percentage of women in American politics today. So obviously women have been involved in American politics since the beginning of the United States with, for example, creating the Declaration of Sentiments at Seneca Falls Convention and also running for president and different representative seats throughout the United States. So, for example, the first woman ever elected to Congress was in 1916. Her name was Jeanette Rankin, who served as Congresswoman to Montana. And this is very interesting because she was elected in 1916, which, you know, despite women not actually having the right to vote yet in any state in the United States. So it has been over 100 years since the 19th Amendment when women received the right to vote and be an active participant in American politics. But, however, in actuality, many women have not been afforded the opportunity to hold prominent positions within the United States political system. So with our most recent Congress, the 117th Congress in 2021, 144 out of 539 seats are held by women, which makes up a total of 27%. And this has been a 50% increase since the 112th Congress 10 years ago. So it's been definitely an increase. And for example, there are over nine key congresswomen in prominent congressional positions, such as Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and eight women that are on committee chairs in the House of Representatives and the Senate. We have also seen a rise in women in grassroots movements across the United States fighting for women's rights and fair and free elections against voter suppression, such as C.C. Abrams in Georgia. And furthermore, Joe Biden announced Harris as his running mate in 2020, and she officially became the first Black and Southeast Asian female to be the vice president in the nation's history. Yeah, thank you, Shannon. That was a very, very comprehensive breakdown. I'm going to go ahead and get to some, some comments and get Rohila in the mix for uh, this discussion. So our first topic that I want to jump into is the role of women in American politics. And for the question, uh, do you think the influx of female representation in key positions in American politics, such as Congress, grassroots movements, and now the vice presidency, will lead to different methods of leadership, um, the way the United States functions as a domestic and global superpower? I think um, the recent influx is definitely encouraging, but... Um, um, it's always kind of sobering to think that we have so long to go. I mean, I remember reading an article recently and it said that it would take about 90 years for us to, if the current trends um, keep up, it would take about 90 years for us to reach like gender parity in Congress. And um, I still think we have so far to go, but I think the recent influx does change perhaps the issues that we brought to the government. I think women politicians or female leaders just play a much bigger role in caring about families, children, um, certain industries. Um, 
reproductive health care, I think just having them at the table changes the conversation. And I think it also just leads to this really progressive cycle where you see more women politicians, which encourages more women to get involved, more women vote, and then more women run, and then it just continues. Um, so I think that's really encouraging. And I think another thing you mentioned in the question was women of color specifically. Um, you know, even for me as an Indian American, I've rarely heard of female Indian American politicians. Um, there have been male ones in the past. There have been, um, luckily my generation is more lucky to witness um, Pramila J. Paul, um, uh, people on Republican and Democratic parties, but it's been really valuable to see Kamala Harris at the position that she has been, um, to see Pramila J. Paul be a member of the squad that we were talking about. I think seeing Indian American woman for me personally is just encouraging and uplifting. And I know that members of other communities who identify with um, different races or um, even sexual identities would definitely identify with the diverse woman that we've seen run and win now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I think that is a really valuable point uh, to bring up representation and how it matters, not just for women, but all denominations of women and um, people who identify as women. I think that's extremely important. And I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think uh, bring up the good point as that there's been this, I think, connotation of progressive circles that since the population is like the majority is women, for example, and there are, are significant um, minority like minority communities within the United States. And so why aren't they receiving equal proportion in Congress in these prominent positions in American politics? I think this maybe gives hope that, you know, it will progressively get better. But as you mentioned, 90 years, you know, we do have a long ways to go. Right. Well, the only way we can start is now <laughs> uh, to sort of transition into our next topic, which is grassroots movements and leaders, which we saw explode specifically within the last couple of years. Uh, just to give some background on this question, many women have been leading key grassroots movement campaigns, such as Stacey Abrams in Georgia, in Georgia, excuse me, creating the organization Fair Fight to, quote, ensure every American has a voice in our election system which is something that we had previously seen a problem with, specifically in Georgia. Uh, we also have Heather Brown in Alabama, who started holding Handmaid's Tale-inspired protests in canvassing against Roy Moore's campaign for an Alabama Senate seat. And for those of you who don't know what Handmaid's Tale is, I definitely encourage you to check it out for some context. Uh, she was also empowered to run for public office to be a Baldwin County Commission's member after her uh, leadership. So my question to you is, the role of women in grassroots movements has been indisputable in their effect on American on the American political climate. Do you foresee these grassroots leaders rising up to becoming traditionally elected officials in the future? Well, I would say I hope so. I think um, the fear sometimes is that to kind of transition from grassroots to a traditional politician means more funding, which potentially could mean more lobbying, um, you know, opening yourself up to special interest groups or corporations. And I think a lot of the public has such a distrust for that, that um, they prefer their grassroots politicians to be grassroots politicians, because they fear that them entering the system is going to change their message, change their um, authenticity. And um, I think that's something 
I do understand and empathize with. Um, I can only hope that we do encourage um, grassroots organizers, sorry, to um, run to seek that funding, but hopefully to find it in different sources. And I think so much of this relates to how we um, set up the funding systems for our government. I mean, it makes it really impossible for a lot of people to stay on message to be um, authentic in the causes they support when they when it takes so much money to enter politics and so much of that money lies in the wrong hands. And so I connect personally to Stacey Abrams a lot because I'm um, a resident of Georgia and I remember voting um, for the last election and it was really hard. <laughs> um, their website is very difficult to use, but on a deeper level, it's there's way more bureaucratic steps to getting your ballot. Um, I remember having to make several calls. Um, it came late, and by that time, I had gone back to LA, um, gone back to Westwood for campus, and um, I was really worried that my ballot wouldn't reach in time. And um, for the congressional ballot race in January, I actually wasn't able to vote at all. Um, some problem happened with my ballot and I tried calling. Um, I was also busy with school. Um, so this is something that really speaks to me. I think her work in Georgia was instrumental, um, even though there are still problems like I face in January, but I think, just the attention, the awareness that grassroots organizers can draw to certain issues is um, beyond the scope and attention, I think, of a lot of traditional politicians. And um, I think something else that grassroots organizer, organizers do differently is um, really go door to door and speak to people who feel like they have no role in the political process. Um, I think just the image of traditional politicians is is so you know up in an ivory tower behind a wall that you can't access and um something about the messaging and the methods of grassroots really gets people out of their homes out on the streets or even online um just making that difference that we need to see yeah absolutely i really you know your your story with your experience with your january ballot i'm sure you are not the only person who experienced these frustrations. And I do think that that's a very important point to touch on. And another thing, I really appreciate you um, bringing up that disconnect, that financial disconnect between um, what we see uh, in the leadership and grassroots organizations versus what we see in like, quote unquote, mainstream politicians. Uh, I think that it's also a wonderful point that you brought up the mistrust that we see. And I think moving forward, it, it, it should really be about how we can shorten that financial leash that we have on grassroots organizations. And that's the only way we can sort of see a bridge between those two gaps. I also think something that's prevalent to note is that a lot of grassroots movements now, like leaders in the United States actually have, for example, more followers on social media than traditional politicians do. And I think that really shows that people um, have more trust in grassroots movements and they like authenticity in politics because now you know with lack of term limits for example in congress people who are in congress kind of have a like a false sense of like what reality is and so i think grassroots movements and these leaders are really showing people what they want to see and so that's why they're following 
if I can add on to that, I think social media is a great um, sort of levelizer. There are issues that come with that as well, but um, you, I, I've personally seen, you know, this rise in grassroots leaders on Instagram, which has been mimicked by traditional politicians who are now kind of scrambling to get a social media team together and try to kind of get their voice out on the same platform because they feel like they're being left behind. But um, even with those efforts, there's a sort of PR tone um, to their social media, which is just lacking the authenticity that um, grassroots leaders have. And so I think that's one area where you really see, even though social media is edited and it it can still have that veneer or wall to it, um, you do you do see the more personal sides of a politician and i think that is what makes it such a great um leveling force really great point yeah absolutely uh to transition to our next topic uh we want to touch on uh, the congresswoman and the team that has been publicized as the squad they have been some of the most outspoken and influential politicians on social media and faces of the progressive and feminist movements. So lately we have seen a lot of political tension within the Democratic Party and you know, within all parties, uh, specifically here between key Democratic congresswomen such as Speaker Nancy Pelosi and squad member AOC or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez due to differences in ideology and these this sort of um, discrepancy between the two has definitely gotten a lot of attention on social media. So my question to you is, should women in politics be mindful of how their disputes are perceived in the media and act with a sort of camaraderie, whether or not it be false, or carry on with the, the passions that we see sort of unbridled in their male counterparts? I think I would rather politics be more honest than to have that veneer of camaraderie. Um, in fact, I think the public is quite cynical about camaraderie and automatically identifies it as false. And um, I think it's no secret um, that there are disputes between, you know, more moderate Democrats and um, more progressive candidates and, um, I don't think anything is accomplished by uh, Nancy Pelosi keep um, having a sort of outward approach or appearance of um, friendliness when, you know, it's highly reported and huge sections of the public are um, not only knowledgeable about um, th these disputes, but interested and want to see both sides really come out and talk about their opinions um, honestly so that you can really decide for yourself. Um, I think so much of politics happens behind closed doors and that's really detrimental to discussion and conversation. And I think even if it's a dispute or an argument, um, perhaps that can become an exchange of ideas that turns into something really productive. And um, I think continuing this kind of facade also it tells people that you know there's no room for reconciliation and if you open it up to discussion and it's honest then um, people would see that perhaps there are compromises that we can make and I think that is especially important in a institution as gridlocked as Congress is I think any honest discussion would move things faster at a much better pace and um, 
personally, I think the squad is definitely a media moniker. Like I think it's taken on a life of its own, but you know, any friendship um, political or otherwise between women is always just nice to see because there's always that um, image of, you know, women as catty or not on each other's side. And um, to see that in politics, politics is especially encouraging because I think it's it's rarely talked about. I mean, um, female candidates who are running opposite one another are often compared by the way they dress or the way they look. Um, and so there's this constant spirit of, you know, competition, opposition. And so it's just nice to see, um, you know, these ladies. And I think they added two members to the squad, if I'm not wrong, and one of them is a um, man. So it's it does go beyond gender, but um, the four original members of the squad definitely kind of define this sisterhood, which I think is really rare in politics. Do you think, for example, with the mass news media about like infighting with Nancy Pelosi and AOC, for example, do you think that they're doing that? Um, do you think they would do that, for example, with male counterparts, with if there was a male speaker of the House against more progressives, uh, either Democrats or Republicans, and there was tension? Do you think they would be giving the same um, outcry in the news about, you know, bonding and they should be working together um, to their male counterparts in Congress? Um, I think that's a wonderful question. I think disputes between men, especially in the realm of politics, are often seen as intellectual, productive exchange of ideas. Um, whereas with women, um, I feel like sometimes women, and rightfully so, have like feel like they have to put on a veneer of friendliness and have to keep reassuring the public. This is just discussion. We just disagree on some ideas because if they didn't do so, it would escalate to this um, dramatized version of you know, these four women against Nancy Pelosi and they don't get along. And um, I absolutely think that men in the same situation would not be treated that way. And I think it would just be looked at with so much more nuance and um, maturity, you know, in, in a world like politics, I can't imagine not having disputes or not having disagreements. And, um, I wish uh, there didn't have to be that veneer of friendliness. And I think so much of that does come from this fear of being perceived in a certain way um, because it's happened to women media for so long. Absolutely, thank you so much. And uh, my follow-up question is AOC uh, frequently uses Instagram Live as sort of a, a medium to uh, speak to her supporters and, and others. And recently through Instagram Live, she revealed that she is a survivor of sexual assault. And as a woman, do you think that there is a stigma against women in positions of authority to be vocal about these issues? Honestly, I think there's stigma against women in general um, to be vocal about these issues. I do think that being the limelight um, just makes that even worse because suddenly your credentials, your opinions on unrelated topics are called into question. Um, and what I really dislike is I think there's this perception of either, um, you know, you're doing this or you're speaking out about this to get some sort of reward or political gain or um, attention. Um, 
which is just so bizarre to me because I think so much of the attention that has come to AOC's way after she said this was negative. And I don't think anyone would wish that upon themselves. Um, I think it is important though for women in those positions of power to speak out because um, they do, even though it is difficult to be in the limelight and to um, speak out about these issues, they also might be in a position of privilege in other ways, um, either financially or um, other forms of support that many women of um, low income status, for example, might not have access to. So um, they have it harder in some ways, I think, and easier in others. And if they take that step to um, talking about these issues, then it just encourages other women too. Um, but I think it would be wonderful if, and perhaps this is the reason why we need more women in Congress, is um, if beyond the talking, there was more political action. And I do think that starts with talking, which is why it's so important, but I hope um, those voices build and lead to an actual you know, policy change or um, discussion of, of laws and things that you can see that are tangible um, that actually implement changes. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate you not sort of simply going off on the optimistic. Uh, I, I really appreciate you show, uh, proving that AOC did have, there was negative backlash and sort of the, the darker side of coming out um, with your experiences with sexual assault uh, on, a, on a public platform. And I also really appreciate you drawing to attention the privileges that someone uh, maybe not necessarily AOC, but in AOC's position might have that other women uh, who would otherwise be in similar positions uh, don't. So I, I really, I think that was an incredible point that you brought up, absolutely. Okay, and into our next topic, Vice President Kamala Harris. So for some background, there have been many women who have run for president or have been considered vice presidential candidates. And however, obviously none of them have been uh, successful. The first woman to run for president was Victoria Woodhull in 1872, and she ran under the Equal Rights Party unsuccessfully. Shirley Anito Chisholm was the first woman of color to run for a major uh, party's presidential nomination at the DNC or Democratic National Convention in 1972. And Hillary Clinton was the first woman to receive a major party's nomination for president. She was the Democratic nominee in the 2016 presidential election, where she faced off and eventually lost to Donald Trump. So Kamala Harris officially became the first Black and Southeast Asian and first female, a lot of firsts, vice president in the nation's history. So my question to you is, what do you think of the societal effects of Kamala Harris as vice president will be? Do we expect to see a permanent change in rhetoric surrounding the presidency like the second gentleman? <laughs> I think um, so much of what she is just, just her identity is revolutionary. And I think that is um, exciting and gives me a lot of hope. Um, uh, like my answer to the last question, I do think it is like the best if um, that representation is followed with policy and you know tangible changes. But um, even her election is remarkable. Um, as an Indian American, I 
um, remember how many relatives in the US and in other countries around the world were um, excited to see her win the nomination and, um, you know, just looking at her history, reading up about um, her Indian American side and seeing where she came from. Um, for the first time, my mom talked to me about me going into politics one day, um, just because she saw this and um, finally thought it was, you know, something interesting. But to give her credit, she had never seen anyone in um, that position before. So um, I definitely think it just changes conversations. It reaffirms the idea that you can um, go into these positions. And um, I think seeing her as a woman is incredibly powerful um, in this role. And even the title Second Gentleman, I think is just such a shift in the way we think about um, men and women in the role of first lady. Um, I hope that um, the second gentleman is still uh, engaged in politics and, you know, sets a good example of what a good second gentleman can do and how supportive they can be um, towards their spouses. And so I think it'll just be interesting to see how all this pans out. Um, I think even if you don't agree with some of her politics or policies, um, even if you're on the other side of the aisle completely, um, I could see a lot of celebration of all these firsts. And I think something in that is unifying um, too, you know, even if you relate to her, um, not necessarily with some of her political um, ideology or policies that she um, has brought about in the past, um, if you can see the value in representation, then um, there's just a unifying aspect to that that I think is very rare in politics nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as it is Black History Month, I think we would not only be remiss, but I think it necessary that we do make a nod to the Black women uh, in America for making a difference in the 2020 presidential election for Joe Biden, as well as the Senate runoff races in Georgia. Uh, how do you think that this insurgence of activity from the Black woman demographic bodes for the future of American politics? I think Black women are among the most silenced voices in America today. And, um, you know, while we talk about all these issues during Black History Month, I do hope that we have that specific gender focus as well, because so much of those issues are left behind. Um, you know, I think a lot about uh, beauty standards in terms of society, but also how it plays a role in politics. Um, you know, so much of politics is about image. And uh, to see Black women talk about beauty standards and what a role that has played and how they're perceived in the media, how they're perceived when they run as candidates. I mean, that's just one of many factors that they have to worry about and worry about in a very different way um, from white women to women of other ethnicities um, to, um, you know, African-American language is, is looked down upon. When you talk about, we were talking about grassroots uh, leaders earlier and um, many of them have talked about, you know, reclaiming things that um, belong to the African-American community. And um, I think so much of the way Black women uh, speak, dress, or look is just attacked. And that has a huge role to play in politics because, again, it, it is so much about image. And um, 
the visuals. And so I think that's, that is quite a tangent, I know, but I wanted to touch on, you know, how um, such a tangential sort of issue um, relates to politics and how it affects, you know, how Black women feel when they go on that stage or when they um, put themselves out in public. Um, so I do think that we have a lot of work to do in that regard. But um, it's been exciting to see how many more um, Black female voices are out there. Um, I think like we talked about the cycle earlier, hopefully it'll get more people to vote, to run. Um, I think Stacey Abrams is a huge inspiration to a lot of people. And um, I still do hope that she continues um, working in politics and hopefully, you know, becomes governor one day. Um, I think there's still such a long way to go. Um, there's still so many issues that we haven't even begun to discuss because we're still talking about, you know, the most important ones. And um, yeah, we do owe, I think a lot of minorities um, speaking as an American, I do feel like so many um, people owe the black American community or, and specifically black women, um, so much for their role in civil rights and advocacy over these years. I mean, um, so many rights and privileges that we have today uh, come from those movements and from those leaders. So I think um, all power to black women. Yeah, I just um, want to make a special note that congratulations to Stacey Abrams for being nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for her work. Uh, movements for Georgia it was that's really amazing and I think it's really great representation that even for example going back to the grassroots movement that even though you might be stigmatized for being um for working in grassroots movements or being a black woman in general in politics as we were talking about you still have the power to make such an international difference yeah and I think one thing that has been proven time and time again but was especially brought to light uh, with this last presidential election was how significant and so powerful the black female voting bloc is and how they really do you know hold within them the, the balance and I think that that norm not only normalization of Ebonics and African-American vernacular English and maybe a shift away from Eurocentric not maybe definitely a shift away from Eurocentric beauty standards uh, should not only be normalized, but celebrated. And I think that that um, is something that can only continue to happen through leadership such as that of Stacey, uh, Stacey Abrams and Kamala and Michelle Obama and other outspoken Black women who, oh, and Amanda um, Gorman, who is incredible. Uh, and I think that we can only see an upward trend. And yes, we do have that 90 year statistic, but I am really hopeful for a shift in future generations of uh, the perception of black women in politics. Uh, so again, another tangent, <laughs> I'm sorry. So to close, I have one last question for you. And that is, what do you think is fundamental to know for women who see themselves having a future in politics? And what are some glass ceilings yet to be broken that you would like to see broken in the near future? I think one thing that I would say is fundamental to know, um, this might sound like a downer at first, but I would say that, you know, no matter how you speak or dress, you will be criticized. And so I would just tell um, women who are running to um, kind of try to disregard that as much as possible because there's really no winning with how you present yourself. Um, you know, you will be 
called too bossy or too quiet. And there's really no winning with um, so much of the way women are perceived and talked about. And so I think some like people like AOC and some other politicians have kind of just abandoned a regard for that at all and have just gone full on full steam ahead with um, what they believe in and what messages they care about. And um, that seems to be working better, even though there is a backlash to that. Um, it seems to be getting the point across and the message across um, more effectively. And then um, some glass things I think remain are um, primarily in terms of funding. Um, for example, with uh, congressional statistics, um, there are certain grants that you can apply for if you're a woman running um, that apply to the local level or the national level, but um, congressional funding for women who want to run is very limited. And um, there are other spheres where this uh, counts as well. There are just spheres of politics where it's harder um, to have those resources. And um, because so many more women come from disadvantaged backgrounds or from um, economic hardship, it's hard to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and um, just run for office when you have nothing to support you in that journey. And um, I think we would do better as a country if we um, really supported different voices in their uh, fight to run and their fight to be representatives um, with actual financial backing because um, really just public support or encouragement uh, does nothing when someone can't finance their run. And so I think that is one aspect of the glass ceiling that we're yet to fight, which is um, really large and broad, but just the general um, you know, lack of access to financial resources or um, a higher likelihood of economic hardship, I think really affects women's um, ability to run. Absolutely, another extremely well thought out and intellectual answer. Rohila, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you to everybody for listening to us today. I hope you enjoyed what I really enjoyed as a wonderful discussion about women in politics. And Rohila, do you have anything to add? Um, I would just say it was an honor to talk about all these really important issues. And I hope, um, you know, the conversation continues. And um, yeah, on another note, I would just hope that everyone is staying safe during the pandemic and yeah, staying um, safe and happy. I want to say a big thank you so much for joining us and talking about the role of women in American politics. And lastly, if you got, if any listeners have suggestions for video ideas, what information you'd like to see, or what guests to invite for next podcast episodes, please contact the Brown Political Union at bpu at g.ucla.edu. Thank you so much.